Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What do the kidneys do? Can you live without them? Aren't we glad we have two of them? And what happens when the kidneys don't work? You know, people hear about things like dialysis, but there's a lot of different things that can be done if somebody has kidney troubles. And to share with us more about the things that we can all do to keep our kidneys happy and healthy, we have Dr. Thomas Chen from Kaiser Permanente. He is a nephrologist who has been in practice here since 2005. That's quite a long time there, Dr. Thomas. And we're going to talk today about what the normal function of the kidney is, what problems can affect the kidneys, and how can we keep our kidneys healthy, what to do when they've already started to kind of not work as well as they used to. So welcome to The Body Show, Dr. Thomas. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, the kidneys, we all know we've got two of them, and they're supposed to be doing a lot of filtering and stuff. What do they normally do? Does all of our blood go through the kidneys? How do the kidneys work? So exactly like you said, the main job of the kidneys is to filter, and the blood flows through the kidneys, and what the kidney filters out are toxins and waste that the body doesn't need. It also filters out extra fluids and electrolytes that the body doesn't need, Uh, and it also has a slew of other um, smaller functions. It it participates in making blood. It makes a, a hormone called erythropoietin, which stimulates bone marrow, uh, formation of blood, and, and also uh, involved in bone metabolism and uh, acid-base balance in the body. So we have to have our body at a certain, we call it a pH, and if it's not at that pH, then the kidneys can sort of kick in and start doing some work to try and balance that out a little bit, because we've got a fairly narrow window for which we can live. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, kidneys are also pretty intricately involved in how our body manages our blood pressure. How does that work? Because people hear about why does a water pill help my blood pressure and why would I need a medication that would help with filtering of the kidney to treat hypertension? How does that work? Yeah, so the the kidney actually has a, a pretty sophisticated uh, filter apparatus and it, it can sense uh, when blood flows bad. And so it actually controls blood pressure through a series of hormonal um, changes and secretions. And so it can really have a profound effect on blood pressure, especially when someone has chronic kidney disease. Um, one of the major symptoms, you can have an abnormal high blood pressure. And it's very hard to treat in that situation. Yeah. So, so there are certain medicines that certainly help out. But um, by the time someone has significant loss of kidney function, uh, it is one of the major contributors to having a high blood pressure. So when we talk about losing kidney function, what is the normal kidney function and how might someone have that measured? That is a great question. So a normal kidney function, I like to think of it in terms of a percent um, uh, function of the kidney. And when we're born, obviously, we have 100% kidney function. As we go through life, um, just like hair turns gray, skin gets wrinkly, um, there is a decline in kidney function. And starting around age 30 to 40, we see about a 1% decline in kidney function per year. Uh, so about 10% per decade. And so as you go through, um, you can actually kind of stage the, the percent loss of kidney function. And how we stage chronic kidney disease is a stage one through five. Uh, stage one being having over 90% kidney function, so virtually normal kidney function, but spilling some protein because the filters are damaged. Stage two being 60 to 90%, where the kidneys actually can do basically everything they need to do. Stage three is 30 to 60%, and a lot of the patients that we see with chronic kidney disease fall in that stage. Below 30% is considered severe disease, um, but it's not really until about 12%, 15% that the kidneys are 
um, not able to do what they need to do and uh, and, and some of the, the waste and toxins uh, build up. Actually, below 30%, some of the toxins build up, but below 15% is basically profound uh, kidney disease, and people oftentimes need dialysis. So the end stage would be dialysis. But in the early stages, you could just be spilling a little bit of protein. So that's something you could check by urinalysis. There's also a measurement that a lot of people see in their labs now called a GFR, glomerular filtration rate. What is that and how is it calculated? So again, that, that's a term that I think confuses a lot of people. I think the best way to think of a GFR or glomerular filtration rate, like you said, is in terms of percent kidney function. So how we come about calculating that is based on just a simple um, a blood test called the creatinine. And basically, we all make creatinine walking around. There's, uh, when we uh, use our muscles, we secrete creatinine. And normal kidneys will filter most of that out. However, when you get um, – we can take this level of creatinine. When you have chronic kidney disease, that level of creatinine does rise in the blood. And there's certain formic- uh, equations we can use to calculate – Uh, the GFR or percent kidney function, if you will, uh, based on that creatinine. So a blood test and a urine test can tell you a lot of information about your kidneys. A lot of information. And it's that what you just mentioned are the greatest screening tools right there, a serum creatinine, a urine protein, and blood. And who should be checking their kidneys? Everybody or are there certain medical problems that make you more likely to need to keep an eye on the kidney function? Great question. You know, most people know that that chronic kidney disease is related to high blood pressure and diabetes. The vast majority, I think it's about 60 to 65% of all end-stage kidney disease or chronic kidney disease is related to those two. But, you know, there's a real big slew of other diseases out there that can contribute to chronic kidney disease. And some of them uh, people are unaware of. And so if they don't have high blood pressure or diabetes, it doesn't mean you don't need to be screened. I think certain diseases, just to throw them out there, there's there's uh, Diseases that affect the whole kidney, like polycystic kidney disease, where cysts kind of smush out the normal good tissue and uh, decrease function there. There's, there's severe stone disease that causes chronic obstruction. There's a bunch of immunological diseases like lupus, uh, things that can uh, secrete antibodies that attack the kidney. So there's a lot of different other systemic medical problems Absolutely. that can affect the kidney, in addition to specific kidney problems that can affect the kidney as well. That's right. There's primary kidney diseases, and then there's secondary diseases that affect the kidney. Things like uh, there's certain infections, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, even HIV, can all uh, cause pretty significant chronic kidney disease. So for a lot of medical conditions, people ought to be checked to see if their kidneys are functioning well. The other thing is a lot of medications get metabolized and eliminated through the kidneys. So if you're on certain medications, like you take a lot of ibuprofen or you take some other medications that have to do with, you know, we call them water pills or diuretics, you need to have certain things monitored to make sure your kidneys are working correctly. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. I think medication-induced chronic kidney disease is one of the most preventable and important things to talk about because... um, Exactly, like you said, especially the class of medicines called the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. We call it NSAIDs, uh, the abbreviation. But things like Motrin, Ibuprofen, Advil, Aleve can, over time, with chronic and heavy use, cause horrible decline in kidney function to the point of going on dialysis. Well, and you also mentioned kidney stones. They can actually cause obstruction. They can actually cause problems. We see a lot of people with kidney stones, gout, which, you know, I tell people, uric acid stones... They can be in the kidney, and you know how they come out? 
you don't want to know. Oh, yeah. That's how they come out. Worse than childbirth, they say. Well, you know, I don't want to have uh, kidney <laughs> stones. So there's a lot of different things that can cause some damage to the kidneys, things that people may have commonly and not even realize. So if you haven't gotten your kidneys checked and you have any of these conditions, always a good idea to get them checked. Agree. Uh, stressing to screen, I think, is important. I think, again, over age 40, we should all be going to the physician anyway, but um, an annual creatinine, an annual urinalysis to, to check for protein, uh, especially in the face of not only having high blood pressure or diabetes, certainly you want to go there, but having a secondary disease, um, good idea to get checked and screened. And cholesterol can also have an impact. If you block the arteries going to the kidney, that's actually a significant problem. Yeah. Ar- arterial disease, both big and small, you have arteries that deliver blood to the kidney, and you have little teeny tiny arteries throughout the kidney. And so we can do tests to kind of figure out if, if either of those are, are damaged. And um, certainly cholesterol is a big uh, contributor. So really, everything that we do, every medical problem has some effect on the kidneys. Well, uh, you may have heard in the United States, 26 million people have chronic kidney disease, and that's nearly 8% of the population um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a real big problem um, that globally affects a lot of people. All right. We're going to hear some more about that in just a few moments. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. And we have Dr. Thomas Chen from Kaiser Permanente in the studio. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what are some of the things that all of us can do to keep our kidneys happy? And what are some of the things in our medicine cabinet that we have to be extra careful with? We mentioned a little bit already, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some more things that if you have them at home, You better keep an eye out because not taking those medicines correctly could cause some trouble you never anticipated. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Medical Center. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Thomas Chen from Kaiser Permanente. Today we're talking about all things kidney because the kidneys are one of those essential organs that we want to make sure that we keep as happy as possible. So, you know, we talked right before the break about screening, if you have any of those medical conditions. What might be some of the things that I would have in my house that if I do have kidney problems, I have to be careful about? You know, I I, I often think about We talk about, quote, renal dosing. Physicians talk about renal dosing medicines, which means that if it's a medicine eliminated by the kidneys, you may have to be careful with how often you take it. And some common over-the-counter things now are actually things that people can take. It makes me think of some of the stomach medications. You know, you hear about them, you know, Prilosec OTC, and you hear about, you know, Nexium OTC. These are things you have to be careful with, huh? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of prescription medicines, certainly a lot of over-the-counter medicines that can cause significant chronic kidney disease. I can't stress enough the non-steroidals. It's probably 90% or plus the uh, the um, the cause of an over-the-counter chronic kidney disease uh, problem. So I think Motrin, Ibuprofen, Advil, Aleve, Naproxen, IV Tordal. Um, there's actually um, a big problem in pro and college sports with uh, IV tortol use uh, causing chronic kidney, uh, kidney damage. There's a uh, there's a story of a Hawaiian football player standout ended up playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers who um, for years got IV tortol because uh, it's a wonderful pain medicine. It's a great anti-inflammatory, but it eventually caused decline of the kidney function to the point where he needed dialysis and stopped playing. Uh, ended up not being able to play football. 
Um, and so I think the awareness, um, both from the, from the general public and through physicians, I think is really important. So let's talk about the folks who have the stage three kidney disease, where maybe they're, we call it the GFR, is between 30 and 60 or so. What can they do? I mean, we all know drink a lot of water. That's something that all of us should do. And yet there are some other things that people can do to help with their kidneys. If you have a diagnosis of kidney problems, should you follow a certain diet? Should you be careful with certain things in your dietary supplements? Should you be careful with vitamins? What should you do? Yeah, that's a great question. I think usually if you know the cause of your chronic kidney disease, the obvious thing is to treat that. So if if high blood pressure is causing your kidney disease, you want to get a good blood pressure. If diabetes is causing the kidney disease, you want to maintain good blood sugars, keep a good hemoglobin A1C. Uh, but, but for people who have chronic kidney disease who are spilling a lot of protein in the urine, that basically basically uh, signifies filter damage. And so there's a slew of medications that the primary or the, the specialist can put you on, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers. These, these medicines will help not only reduce your blood pressure but reduce the protein in the urine. Like you had mentioned, there is some dietary things that you can do. People often ask me, hey, if I stop eating protein, am I going to – pee less protein, is that going to help my kidneys? Well, the answer is, yeah, you will probably pee less protein, but to restrict protein completely will cause malnourishment and and poor nutrition. So we don't want to do that. The general rule is for people with chronic kidney disease spilling a lot of protein, you want to basically take in less than 0.6 grams per kilogram per day. And I know that sounds quite worthless to the average person because I don't know too many people who keep a a scale by their uh, dinner table and Say, honey, please don't give me you know less than that, but or more than that. But um, I think how I usually talk to patients and have them conceptualize it is view a a size of a deck of cards or the size of the palm of hand. That should be the the amount of protein you should eat throughout a throughout uh, for each meal. And what kinds of foods are they going to get protein from? So animal proteins are are, are obviously the, probably the most popular form. So beef, chicken, fish, lamb, but certain uh, proteins are found in uh, vegetables too. So tofu, beans, uh, things like that can, are also you got to keep in mind are sources of protein. So once you get the dietary recommendations, which often, and again, shout out to all of the nutritionists and the dietitians because they do a great job really sitting down with folks and helping them understand what foods are best based on their medical conditions. So once you get that taken care of, should you be careful with what kind of liquids you drink? Do you have to avoid certain things, even if you even if your kidneys are damaged already, should you avoid caffeine? Should you avoid certain herbal supplements? What other sorts of things do you have to be careful with? Is is soda something? You know, you'll see someone who has diabetes say, I don't drink regular soda anymore. I drink a lot of diet soda. Does that still have an effect on the kidney? You know, there are certain diseases that, that you probably do want to stay away from caffeine. I think polycystic kidney disease uh, has shown that caffeine can possibly stimulate cyst growth and speed it up. I think certainly stay away from the sugary drinks for people who have diabetes. Um, there's definitely some herbal medicines that have shown to progress chronic kidney disease. I think anything um, that has aristolochic acid in it is has been shown time and time to show uh, declining kidney function. So definitely stay away from that. Okay. I don't know what that is. Where would I get that from? You know, a lot of Chinese herbal medicines uh, and, and Eastern medicines um, can have that ingredient. And so for people to be aware... You know, a lot of people are are looking um, outside of Western medicine, and I think you just got to be really careful about what you take and look at the ingredients. And that's certainly one aristologic in in Chinese herbal medicines for different things to look out for. 
So if you do want to take some of those other complementary medications, you should really talk with your kidney specialist, talk with your primary care provider, make sure that somebody takes a look at these types of ingredients so that you're not putting your body at risk. Absolutely. The other thing you mentioned was other things you have to avoid with chronic kidneys. I think if if you have a less than 30% kidney function, you can retain potassium. Uh, so you have to really watch out for things like orange juice, uh, and not to mention the foods that are rich in potassium, but as far as drinks, you know, things that are high in potassium, you don't, you don't have carte blanche to do, you know, drink as much as you want. You have to be somewhat mindful. Well, because when your kidneys don't work as well, you retain potassium. Absolutely. And high potassium can cause problems with your heart rhythm, can cause you to go into funny heart rhythms, can cause some muscle issues, all sorts of troubles. All sorts of troubles, like you mentioned. Some, like you said, are very serious and fatal. So it ends up being probably the least favorite thing a nephrologist takes care of because you have to call people up, harass them about their diet at home, make sure they're not eating high potassium. Sometimes you have to give them a medicine and you say, hey, I know you feel completely normal, but I'm going to give you a medicine that's going to give you horrible diarrhea. You're going to be cursing my name tonight, but um, the good news is your potassium is going to be low tomorrow. So I think a lot of people don't love that. Really? I don't know why they wouldn't love Yeah, that. it's strange to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But it's certainly, you know, the potassium is a huge factor, and people need to be careful with certain things in their diet. But then also drinking enough water, making sure they're not having too much fluids for their heart condition, not too few fluids. You know, the kidneys love to filter, and in order to have some fluid to help you get rid of those toxins, that's why that's why people need to pee. That's why they've got to get the the toxins out of their system. We've we've heard people say that you should drink enough water till your urine is very clear, that it shouldn't be dark yellow, that it shouldn't show all those other signs of concern like foamy bubbly urine could be protein. There's a variety of things we hear out there. How accurate are those? You know, I think the amount that someone should drink is is different in each patient and I think the amount should be the amount you can drink without causing overload where you start seeing swelling in the, um, in the body or shortness of breath in the lungs. So um, it really differs from patient to patient in the comorbidities. If someone's got really bad heart, they probably don't want to be eating a lot of uh, salt and taking in huge amounts of liquid. But yeah, in general, kidneys like perfusion. Kidneys like having a good amount of liquid uh, flowing through them. And so water is a good source to get that from. Water. Probably the best source. Yeah, I, I think as far as special, you know, with mentioning you have below thirty percent kidney function, I think you want to avoid high potassium foods. You know, for diabetes, you want to avoid high sugary drinks. So let's talk about those folks who wind up hitting that point where they're looking at dialysis. So often they've seen you when they're at that 30 to 60% or so. And then as time goes on, they may go down into the 20 to 30% and time may continue despite great treatment for their primary condition, whether it be blood pressure, diabetes, whatever it is, they may still have a decline in kidney function. Some of this, once the process starts, you have a harder time halting it. So you mentioned that at the 12 to 15%, that's when people start needing to consider dialysis. But prior to that, there are some steps they need to take to make sure that when dialysis time comes, they're ready. So what are some of the things people need to take? I hear them talking about like shunts and trying to prepare in advance. How soon before someone is about to undergo dialysis? Do you start some of the preparation work for the type of dialysis and even discussing things like kidney transplant and some of the other alternatives if there's time and ability to do that? Great question. You know, people progress 
their kidney disease progresses at different rates. And so there's certain risk factors that tells us, hey, this person has a you know 50% chance of being on dialysis within a year. Um, and so usually when you put together those risk factors, if someone has a declining kidney function, and in general, I would say 20% is when you start really having a conversation about, yes, my main objective is to protect your kidneys as long as I can. But at some point, we have to face reality, and we may reach below 12%. And like you said, dialysis, hopefully the transition from before dialysis to after is a smooth one. And because there's different forms of dialysis, if one chooses hemodialysis, that shunt which you mentioned, it takes several months to actually mature. So if you place one too late, someone might need dialysis prior to that, and they might need a un- unnecessary procedure like a catheter in their chest. So really, there's planning is of utmost importance. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Thomas Chen from Kaiser Permanente. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the logistics of dialysis and also some of the other alternatives if someone's lucky enough to be able to get a transplant or have something else happen that can help them with their kidneys. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Inter-Island Solar Supply, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Thomas Chen, and today we're talking about kidneys. And he is a nephrologist at Kaiser Permanente for, boy, 12 years now. So thanks for doing that. We have a statewide need for more nephrologists. And one of the reasons is because all of the people who are on dialysis need to have a nephrologist involved in their care. And so dialysis is sort of a way that we can try and help provide assistance for the body, even though the kidneys don't work, to be able to still do the filtering. But ultimately, If you get filtering done 24 hours a day, seven days a week by your own kidneys, then what kind of changes do you need to make to only provide three hours, three times a week? Is it super filtration? I often wonder, you've probably got to clear out the blood from much more than my own kidneys would at any given time because you only got nine hours out of a whole week. That's a great observation. So there are, there's, two forms, major forms of dialysis. And the first form, which I think you're referencing, is hemodialysis. Most people go for about four-hour treatments three times a week, so it's about 12 hours. And like you said, there is a a good 48 hours or over the weekend, 72 hours where people aren't getting dialysis. And it is important that people don't take in too much fluid. It's important they don't take too much um, uh, high-potassium foods because it could result in uh, some pretty serious consequences. So yeah, being on dialysis, again, you have to follow a strict diet sometimes as far as not too much fluid and salt. There's another form of dialysis called peritoneal dialysis, which people can do in the privacy of their own home. Um, it's done through a catheter in the abdomen. And because you're doing dialysis every day, say for eight hours overnight, people can be a little more lenient with how much fluid they take or salt and um, still have to be careful. But it's a, it's a different lifestyle doing peritoneal dialysis. Why do you say that? I think it tends to lend more to the people who want control and and are kind of on top of their kidney disease. Um, I think it really needs to be the demographic of people who are very compliant. You know, you wouldn't probably want to, if someone's not able to follow instruction, you probably don't want them with a catheter doing dialysis at home. But um, 
in general, it is a very good form. It's probably more work, but some people want to be the, in charge and kind of take control of it. Well, and if they're still working or if they can't get to a dialysis center readily, there may be some other reasons why logistically this is a good option for them. Absolutely. And, you know, I have people on hemo and peritoneal dialysis who both are working full-time jobs. I have people on hemo and peritoneal who are going to school full-time. So it can be done with hemo too. They have night shifts, they have evening shifts. But in general, I think it's you really want the, the, the compliant patients to be doing it. And I think that's, like you said, autonomy, lifestyle. A lot of times, uh, peritoneal dialysis is the right choice. So... Let's talk about kidney transplant. If you are lucky enough to be able to get a kidney transplant, can that essentially eliminate the need for dialysis? Absolutely. Um, Kidney transplantation is healthier. It's one of the feel-good things about nephrology. Uh, People have more freedom. They um, come off of dialysis, and they actually live longer too. So that's something that's offered to everyone who might need it, but it's very difficult to find a match, particularly with our sort of ethnic mix and variety of different folks with various ethnic backgrounds here in the islands. But if there's the possibility, kidney transplant would be preferred. Kidney transplant is definitely preferred. It's, you know, anyone who is on dialysis um, can be evaluated for kidney transplant. In general, you don't even have to be on dialysis. You can have a kidney function of less than 20%. And start the whole evaluation process. And, and, start, you, and you could even get a transplant prior to get, getting dialysis. Now, sometimes dialysis is a bridge to eventually getting a transplant, but some pe- fortunate people who maybe are worked up early, maybe they have a loved one or uh, someone who's able to donate a kidney, they can get preemptive transplants prior to dialysis. And it can be, it would have to be a match. And particularly because of our population, a lot of people are HAPA, this and that. And, you know, that way, if you have a family member who would be able to share a kidney, they would still retain their kidney function and they would give you a kidney and you could avoid dialysis or even come off of dialysis. So it could be a life-saving type of procedure. Are we ever going to get to the point where technologically we can provide artificial kidneys that could do the same thing as an actual live kidney? That is a great question. That is something um, we work with UCSF with, with our transplantation and something I kind of harass them every time they come out. How is how is the artificial kidney coming? They're actually developing one um, and it, the artificial kidney is an implantable device that's about the size of a teacup. It's actually a mixture of mechanical filter plus kidney cells and it, it virtually filters the blood and makes urine. Um, but like you said, it would be unfathomable, actually, how, how big of a benefit it would be. The number one problem with kidney transplantation is the supply. You know, you have to wait till someone passes or if, if you don't have a loved one. And so it would or make... if you don't have a match. You don't have a match. Exactly. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, like you mentioned, with our population here, mixed ethnicity, uh, sometimes finding a match is, is harder. So if they were able to get a mechanical kidney, this could have a huge impact. Huge impact. I think... Are you know, we still pretty far away from that, though? You know, I, I, I can't comment exactly when it will be, but it, it, there's actually a website called The Kidney Project. And, you know, they, they've run into some obstacles. The, the kidney is in, in the animal testing phase. Um, and um, I think uh, some of the problems I've had is when you run the blood through the filter, they've had problems with blood clotting. So that's one of the things I know they're trying to solve. Um, I know funding's been a problem. I think... Um, even on the website, there's there's a place where you can actually donate money to the cause. But I think that would that would be a major player because, you know, again, people with kidney transplantation, one of the main problems is the side effects from the immunosuppression. And um, this would basically negate all that. 
you can basically have a transplant and not need to take immunosuppression, which can be very detrimental to the body. Well, it certainly sounds like there is a lot of great information that is coming out in the world of nephrology. And in fact, should they ever be able to come up with a mechanical kidney, I hate to tell you, Dr. Thomas, you may not have as much work to do as you do now. But that's in a good way. I think that, you know, as technology improves with medicine, we learn more about how to help the body adapt and how to provide some of those functions that we can't live without. So I want to thank you today for sharing your expertise with us on The Body Show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. We'll have to have you on again. Dr. Thomas Chen is a member at Kaiser Medical Center of the Nephrology Department, and he is doing an excellent job helping to save kidneys throughout Hawaii. If you want to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, whypublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kosovich, Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk more about medicine right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.